Welcome to the River Bluff Church Sermon Podcast. For more information about us, please visit riverbluff.org. If you have a Bible, you may want to grab it, get it open to the book of James, because we're, we're going to dive in pretty quick this morning. We're picking up where we left off last week as we continue this journey through this incredible letter that the Holy Spirit inspired the half-brother of Jesus to write. And we're going to start um, in verse 5, and you can follow along with me. I'm going to be reading this morning. Um, I'm going to read from ESV. We've already heard from one other translation uh, that I I asked Lena to read from. We're going to look at another translation later too, but let's start here, verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But... Let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. This is the word of the Lord. I want to pray again. Let's pray. Father, we, we come with your word open before us now god and we long to understand and know you and and believe and to to have the truth of your word now applied in such a way that we could in an ever more daily increasing way look like your son Jesus and it's in his name we ask these things amen Um, some of you are familiar with a paraphrased translation of the Bible called the message I use it a lot around here I love it before the message came out or at least before I was ever aware it existed um, I used another paraphrase um, that I, I, I fell in love with a lot. It was called the J.B. Phillips translation. Um, he did the entire New Testament. He did parts of the Old Testament, but he's mostly known for his translation uh, of the New Testament. And I bring that to your attention because I'm going to use it today. I haven't used it like in forever in a public setting anyway. Um, it's not nearly as accessible as the message is. But when I first did my very first personal in-depth study of the book of James, it was one of my go-tos. And so I I fell deeply in love with it. And so I want to read to you uh, verse 2 of James chapter 1, going back to what we talked about last week a little bit, um, from the Phillips translation. Uh, He he interprets it, or, or at least translates it this way. When all kinds of trials and temptations crowd into your lives, my brothers, don't resent them as intruders, but welcome them as friends. And with that quick little brief phrase, I think we begin to get some clarity of thought uh, quickly of the, what I'll call the fast-paced move of this writer James and his rapid-fire sequential approach to practical Christian living. James shoots from the hip. If you've read the book, you know this. He does. He tells it like it is. Love that about James in this book. But if you're not careful... You can easily take this book and mishandle it in such a way that you turn it into a works-based faith. James even warns about it. 
and we'll, we'll see that later. James doesn't do that, but I've seen many Christians do it, and some pastors do it, and what they do is they begin to remove from the equation of faith, grace, and those two things cannot be separated. So in verses 2 through 4, as we saw last week, James urged his readers of which we are as well, we are some of his readers, to recognize that the trials that we face in this life, the sufferings that we go through, are opportunities that God our Father gives us or allows us to walk through as his, as his children because he has a purpose for allowing them into our lives. Verse 4 tells us that, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Now, if you have that perspective on the trials when you face them, you will be able to do what James encourages us to do, and that is to discover a space for joy in the midst of those trials. And we know that last week, that is like completely counterintuitive to us, and it is completely countercultural. See, joys and trials, joy and suffering in the mindset of our contemporaries are two opposite things. They can't cohabit the same space. They say if you ever want joy, you got to remove trials. you got to remove suffering from the planet because they can't, they can't work together. And James says, no, they can. And he sets joy and trials together with each other. Now, the only way that you and I will ever get that is if we equate it to the ultimate purpose of God. If we see the relationship, Paul in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, many of you know it, can quote it, that God works in all things for good to those who love him, who are called according to his what? Purpose, to his purpose. James has already told us what God's ultimate purpose in our lives is in verse 4, to make us complete and lacking nothing. In other words, that we would be complete Christians, which really means that we would look more and more like Jesus every day now if we're honest and i think we want to be and if we're going to be realistic and i i hope we we will we have to acknowledge that that is not a natural thought those things don't naturally go together you know when we're going through the process of these testings and i think that's why james so quickly in his letter brings us to the teaching in verse 5 now, a lot of times this verse, some of you know it, some of you have quoted it, and most often gets pulled out and is all about decision-making, you know, uh, about decision-making maybe for a job or a marriage or how to raise your kids, and, and, and that's not a bad thing. James 1.5 can stand uh, alone, sort of. I want you to listen to it again, James 1.5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. And again, it, it often stands alone, but James puts it in the context. And he ties it, uh, verse 4, what he's teaching in verses 2 through 4, to what he's going to say to us in verses um, 6 through 8 this morning. And he puts it right there quickly at the opening of this, uh, opening paragraph of this letter because it's so important to get it if you're going to take this faith journey with James. So when we look at it, we recognize that what he's talking about here has to do with wisdom, and it's directly tied to these testings. And again, I think the Phillips translation can be really helpful here because it uses a unique word. It uses the word process. Listen to it when I read the verses 2 through 4 to you together. When all kinds of trials and temptations crowd into your lives, my brothers, don't resent them as intruders, but welcome them as friends. 
Realize that they come to test your faith and to produce in you the quality of endurance. But let the process go on until that endurance is fully developed and you will find that you have become men of mature, and ladies too, mature character, verse 5, and if in the process any of you does not know how to meet any particular problem, how to face a particular problem, and then James is going to tell us what to do. But I want to pause there for a moment. I want to pause there for for just a quick second because I want us to think about this process. And if we don't, we will ultimately do damage to this great verse, verse 5, this great verse about pursuing wisdom. Yes, it can stand alone, but we need to see it in this moment as we read through James in the context that James gives it. And the way that I want us to do that today is I want us to throw three questions at this scripture passage. Three questions I want to throw at this uh, scripture passage to help us see what James wants us to see, the beauty and power of this verse. Question number one, what does James point out that we need? What would be a one-word answer that James is telling us we need? We need wisdom. And did you notice how gracious James was, you know, when he tells us that? He didn't say, hey, you're a bunch of meatheads. You know, you need just some of this wisdom. You're desperate for it. James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, strategic approach. He's an emotionally intelligent person. You know, James is. He gets it. He doesn't, you know, because he knows any person in their right mind is not going to stand up and say, wisdom, I don't need any of that. You know, nobody's going to admit that kind of in a public way. James says, if you lack wisdom, and I think, personally that includes all of us we all could use some more wisdom i'm gonna do a survey okay you can participate um how many of you when you were maybe in high school or in college jacob you're in college now uh i want you to watch for this jacob and report back to me on on your college career now okay i want to know how many of you have ever had the experience where one of your professors or teacher said, in order for you to get out of this institution and succeed in this institution, you are going to have to acquire wisdom. It's not spoken of like that. See, wisdom has almost become an old-fashioned word. It's begun to be obscured by words like insight or, you know, intelligence or information or better yet, artificial intelligence you know it's you could take all four of those put them together you still will not have wisdom you still won't education cannot be equated with wisdom education can make us smarter but it is not wisdom this past week i read um, about three people who were in a plane a a pilot, of course, um, a Boy Scout, and the smartest man on earth. And the engine in the single-engine plane fails, um, and the plane is going down. And there are only two parachutes on the plane. And so the smartest man grabs one of the parachutes, and he says, I owe it to the world. I'm the smartest man. Sorry, guys. I got to live. And he jumps. Well, the pilot looks at the Boy Scout, and he says, Son, I have lived a full and just a wonderful life. And so 
you take that other parachute. And the Boy Scout says, Captain, man, don't worry yourself. The smartest man in the world just jumped out with my backpack on his back. Um, <laughs> our world is filled with smart people who are jumping out of the plane with backpacks on their back. Not parachutes. See, there's a huge difference between educational intelligence and biblical wisdom. And one of the paradoxes of our faith, especially when it comes to this understanding of faith and doubt and godly wisdom, and, and, and the, please hear me say, the pursuit of wisdom is the ultimate intellectual challenge. But here's the deal with wisdom. Biblical wisdom, simple and uneducated people can live with great wisdom while PhDs fumble around in their folly. That's the difference between biblical wisdom, you know? See, one thing's for sure, sooner or later, this plane that we're all in, it's going down. It, it, it's going down. And really smart people and Boy Scouts alike, every single one of us, has to jump and we need to be wise about what parachute we're putting on and education alone despite what our culture tries to tell us is not the great panacea of all the ills in our world if it was we would have solved all of society's major problems by now. We would have solved global hunger. We would have solved poverty. You know, we would have solved so many issues. But education alone cannot meet that need. It can't do that. You know, it, yeah, we're a highly intelligent culture who currently does have enough information, you know, to solve many things, but it's not wisdom. See, we know enough to do the right things, but it seems like we keep doing all of the wrong things. When you read your newsfeed, or if you still get one newspaper this week, how many of you saw multiple stories of people doing all the wrong things? I did. Lots of people doing all the wrong things. What was missing? Some of them were highly intelligent people. What was missing was wisdom. See, wisdom is not simply cognitive. It's not just mental assent. Wisdom is moral. There's a morality to wisdom. Wisdom is the behavior that emerges from uh, your belief system. It will come out of your belief system. Now, for example... Jesus, when he was teaching, um, he, he tells a parable about um, a wise builder and a foolish builder in Matthew chapter 7. Jesus tells us that a wise man built his house on a rock, and when the storms came and lashed against it, it stood. That a foolish man built his house upon sand. When the storms came, it collapsed. Now, was Jesus' point about construction? No. If you go and you read that later today, you'll discover that what Jesus was saying is, those people who put into practice my teachings, they're wise. Those who don't are foolish. And the outcomes are predetermined. See, friends, wisdom 
is the information that God supplies turned into action. So, for example, if you go back and read in 1 Kings chapter 3 about a story from the life of Solomon, it was God came to Solomon and said to Solomon, Solomon, I'll give you anything your heart desires. I want you to look at Solomon's response to God's offer. Now, O Lord, my God, you have made me king instead of my father, David, but I am like a little child who doesn't know his way around. That's not what you would expect as a response from a king. Most of us would expect, you know, a king would say, hey, I'm the king. Give me what I want, you know, and just, you know, dove in. I want power. Solomon comes humbly to God and says, I'm, I'm like a little child. God, you've made me king of this great people, your people. I'm, I'm like a little child. Friends, here, here's something I learned from Solomon right here, is you will never be a wise person and a person filled with pride simultaneously. Those two things, mutually exclusive. You can't, you can't live in both of those. Just make a note of that. If you've got a big head about your intelligence and your learning, you've got a fat head, not wise, you know. You may be intelligent, but you won't be wise. See, humility is a precursor to biblical wisdom. Solomon goes on, verse 9, this is what he asked for. God, give me understanding heart so that I can govern your people well and that I might know the difference between right and wrong. Friends, that's wisdom. Looking to understand what God says is the difference between right and wrong. And friends, I feel like I'm picking on our education system, and I'm not meaning to, but I do need to point this out. If an education system is built on relativism that says there is no such thing as absolute right and absolute wrong, inevitably it will collapse. And we're seeing it. We're seeing that. See, it's no wonder that when Solomon finally decides that he's lived long enough to kind of collect all the wise sayings and wise things that he's heard and learned, it's called the book of Proverbs. Listen to how he starts the book of Proverbs, chapter 1, verse 1. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. To know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing and righteousness, justice and equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and let the one who understands obtain guidance. To understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise um, and, and their riddles. And so he's saying, just gathering all of this, man, we need to do this. This is something we need to do. And then look what he says after he's kind of laid out what this book is about. He says this in verse 7. Fear of the Lord, beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of this pursuit of this thing called wisdom. What do we need? James asks, we need wisdom. And what that means is acting in light of what God has revealed to us about himself, right in the middle of the circumstances of our suffering or our trials, our, our difficulties. So just Joe's very, very, very simplistic definition of wisdom is this. Wisdom is knowing how to live God's way in God's world. That's what wisdom is. Knowing how to live God's way 
in God's world and then doing it. Knowing how to do it and do it. You know, there's a song that uh, we don't sing it a lot around here anymore, but we have. It's, this is my father's world, which tells us that God is the one who established the world. He set the planets into space. He ordered the affairs of the universe. And a wise man or a wise woman, one who knows this, will know that they want to live God's way in God's world. And friends, a life lived that way is radically different from life lived in the world. It is going to look radically different. It was in Corinth, and it can be in Charleston. Paul wrote to Christians in Corinth, and he said this, Consider, what have the philosopher and the writer and the critics of this world to show for all their wisdom? He said, you line up all the great minds. What do they have to show for their wisdom? Has not God made the wisdom of this world look foolish? Read the paper. Read, read your news feed. The wisdom of the world looks pretty foolish. When you really look at it, you get to the bottom of it. And yet the great tragedy uh, of our day, for, to me, is the extent to which the capital C church in the West has tried to pursue the wisdom of the world. The wisdom of the world in our politics. The wisdom of the world in our marketing campaigns, the wisdom of the world in our financial strategies, and we sit and we look and we think, well, we're as clever as, clever as anyone, wise in the ways of the world. Really, entrepreneurial, apostolic, we, we hear those terms meshed together and thrown around. I want you to listen to what the culture thought of the first apostles. Acts chapter 4. Verse 13, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. See, when, when they spoke like Jesus, the world marveled at his wise word, their wise words, because they realized they had been with Jesus and they thought, these are, these are common fishermen. Where did they get this information? How do they discern the depths of humanity the way that they do? How are they able to say the things that they say they had been with Jesus? Because wisdom begins with having this reverential awe, fear of God. Now, I am not trying to build a case for ignorance. So if any of y'all go home and said, Pastor Joe said, drop out of school and seek wisdom, that is not what I'm saying. And I will, I will track you down in love because I, I do believe that you need to pursue intelligence and study with your whole heart to be all that God wants you to be. I, I believe that. And so I, I, I want to encourage that. But there's more to it than that. There's more to life in this world than just that, that, that kind of educational thing. And there's a radical difference between the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of God. And that's why James says, you'll never understand the paradox of joy in suffering until you get what you need the most. And what you need the most is the wisdom of God. So question number two. Okay, what should we do, James? What does James say we should do? Well, in a really brief two-word phrase, he says, ask God. Look at James chapter 1 verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. 
Now, the God who James identifies with, he describes 12 verses later in verse 17. If you've got your Bibles open, want to scroll down there, you can. It's going to come up on the screen. James 1.17 describes uh, the, the, the God that James came to know through his brother Jesus. It says, every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father who created all lights. He created all the heavenly lights. Everything you see out on the dark night sky, he said, comes from the Father who created all these in the heavens. He is always the same. He never makes dark shadows by changing. God is the same on Sunday as he is on Monday. We sang about it. Great is his faithfulness. He, he doesn't change. He doesn't shift. And James says, you need to ask if you want to receive here. And just maybe he's remembering his big brother saying in Matthew chapter 7, Ask, and it will be given you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. Maybe you're not going to get wisdom because you're not asking God for it. And your heavenly Father is prepared to give good things to you. We just read those words. And there is nothing that is a greater good to you than the wisdom of God. How things really are. So, how should you ask God? Three quick ways. First of all, you should ask God simply. James says, if you lack wisdom, ask God. Don't complicate it. It's very simple. It's very straightforward. Dear God, I need wisdom. Dear God, I don't understand the mess I'm in right now. I don't know how I got here. Show me, show me where to go next, God. God, right now this feels like something that could cause me to, to stumble and fall, a temptation, and I, I, wanna, I don't want to walk in it. God, God, give me your wisdom. Let me see what you see here, God. I need that. Simple, straightforward. Then you need to ask God suitably in, in a proper manner because there actually is a proper way to make a request. The first word you use is please. And the last words you use are, thank you. And we have forgotten those words in our culture. If you don't believe me, you go check me on this. You go sit in a coffee shop and listen to someone walk up to the counter and say, give me a, I'd like my, I mean, just like that. We actually call it placing a what? We just start ordering people around. We're, we're, you know, no please, no thank you. And, and friends, here, here is, I know you're saying, well, my goodness, Joe is now Mr. Manners. Here's why this is so important in our day. Because it is translated into the church in the way we approach God with our requests. And we don't come suitably. We come almost making an order. Friends, he is the God who spoke the universe into creation. He is the God. He's the God of angel armies. He's the God of all creation. You know, we, we got, we've got this I deserve it mentality. Do you know what the Bible says we all deserve? We deserve death and hell. That's what we deserve you know Pe people in our day we, we talk about you know wh what we deserve from our government it's not a bad thing to make you know that assumption but when that spills over into your walk with God 
and you start thinking that the church exists so you get what you deserve, I don't want what I deserve. Thank God for his great grace and his loving, generous heart who bids us come boldly into his presence. You know, Jesus, you know, came and he, he made access to God so that we could come to him and know him as Abba Father. That's how Jesus told us to approach him. And we can do that by his grace, but he remains God. And we need to approach him in a suitable manner. And somebody might say, well, what does that look like? Hebrews 10, tells us, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in fullness of faith, which is really what James said to us back in verse 5 when he said, ask God, because in verse 6, he shows us that we need to ask this third way. We need to ask assuredly, ask simply, ask um, uh, suitably, and then ask assuredly. With confidence in God, look at verse 6 of James 1. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt. Believe and not doubt. Now, friends, again, belief here is more than just intellectual assent. To believe, to believe God is an expression of trust. It's an expression of devotion, that you're devoted to him. You know, to doubt here is more than just simply, you know, well, I wonder if this could be true. It, it, it's not that kind of doubt. Here, doubt that he's talking about is to refuse to entrust yourself over to God. Again, Philip's translation was very helpful uh, to me here. He says this, um, verse 6, but he must ask in sincere faith without secret doubts as to whether he really wants God's help or not. Friends, God knows when you ask whether you really are asking for his help. You know? Have you ever been in a setting where there's somebody there and they're asking questions and they're doing it in such a way that you know they know the answer, but they're just asking the questions so they look smart? Don't go to God like that. Don't come here and sing the songs and just, you know, try to ask the questions so you look like you, you, you know things. Now, you and I, admittedly, we could misjudge somebody sometimes, you know, thinking that they're doing that and they're not. Guess who never gets it wrong? God never gets it wrong. He knows the intents of our heart, you know. And oh my goodness. When you pray, especially if you ever play, pray in any kind of public setting, like in your small group or maybe here on stage or, or just wherever, don't pray to impress people. God, God knows. Because if that's what you're doing, you are lying. You're not humbly coming to God. It's hypocrisy. Can you think of a worse place to lie than, than in prayer? Don't, don't be this double-minded, you know? Don't, don't go that. See, if, if that's you, then what's happened is you're, you're a doubter. You're, you're, you're a non-truster. You're not a believer. See, in the face of trials and fears and disappointments, to come to God properly is to come to him like a child needing to trust their parents to save them. 
in a moment of, of tension. See, being able to ask God to, for his wisdom in various trials. Paul wrote these other words about our sufferings. He says that our sufferings, in light of the glory that is going to come to us one day, they're light and momentary. You'll never understand that apart from the wisdom of God. That never makes sense in this world. That what you're going through right now that is so painful, what, what John Ross and his wife Donna are going through right now at the hospital, that, that, that's that light and momentary, unless you understand the whole context of God's wisdom. You know, we, we sang the words earlier, Jesus is better. There's no other so sure and steady. My hope, my hope is held in your hand when castles crumble and breath is fleeting. Upon this rock I will stand. Is that where you're going to take your stand? On the wisdom that God gives. If anybody lacks wisdom, you should ask God. But ask in such a way that you realize who you're speaking to. Asking suitably, you know. Asking assuredly. Father, I'm asking for your wisdom. I'm asking for it so I can walk in your ways. Because God knows whether or not you really want it. Whether you really mean it. You know, I've... I've over the years, I've heard and watched people often in their prayers with something like, and Jesus, we want to do what you want us to do, so just show us. Pray that prayer on Sunday. And on Monday, go out and treat people in the most unloving, God-forsaken ways. They did not want the wisdom of Jesus. They didn't want Jesus to show them anything. That's the kind of faith that James is talking about here. That's the kind of duplicity that he's warning about. You know, it's just the craziest thing. And this leads us to question number three. What does James point out we need? He said wisdom. Question number two, what does James say we should do? We should ask God. Question number three, what does James say we can expect? And I, I want to, let me come at this kind of in reverse order. Let me start with a negative first, and then we'll finish on a positive note. What should we expect? Well, we will find in life, if what you try to do with God is hedge your bets, then you're a person of doubt. You're not really believing, you know. You can't ride, you can't ride two horses. You can't ride the, 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 the horse of faith and the horse of doubt simultaneously. You, you, you can't do that. You know, you'll find yourselves... In great turmoil within, James says in verse 7, that man should not think he'll receive anything from the Lord. And you say, well, wow, I, I thought you could ask, you know, anytime, any way that you want it to, and you could get stuff. Well, apparently not. Not, not, not always. There's, there's such a way to come before God in prayer and get zilch. And we need to know the difference. We need to understand the wisdom so that it won't happen, so that when we come to God in prayer, that we're on the receiving end of his, of his blessing, of his, of his goodness, of his fatherly provision. That, that's what we you know, want to expect. And so the real issue here, as James is addressing this, when, when you think about this doubting, it's really about a divided heart. Divided loyalty. See, I don't think James is saying here that if a person has ever had any doubt about something they read in the Bible, that that person can never, ever, 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 ever ask God for anything again. Because God, they're cut off. That is not what James is saying here. Friends, there's no way to think 
in depth about the promises in this book without stopping and asking some questions. And questions have, you know, at their core some doubt, even if it's just for a second, a moment. Wow, is that, is that true, God? Can it be true? And, and friends, so what we need to do on this issue is we need, to, we need to start doubting our doubts as much as we doubt our certainties. We, we need to do that from time to time. Now, I think what James is on to here is that the doubter is a person whose prayers and actions are clearly at odds with each other. They come before God and ask God for wisdom with an intention that they're not going to do what they're asking for. Some of you are familiar with the great Saint Augustine. Um, His epic work, writing work, is a, um, a work called Confessions. And appropriately, in this work called Confessions, he, he writes about uh, an ill-intentioned prayer that he made one day. This was St. Augustine's prayer at one point in his life. Lord, make me pure, but not yet. Friends, that's a doubter. That, that's somebody who's going to be blown about by the wind, you know. He doesn't, it, it's kind of like, hey, it's Friday night. Make me pure, but not yet. Let's wait till Sunday. That's a doubter. He's going to be tossed. And St. Augustine was in that season of his life. You, you read about it. To receive the gifts from God, the gift of wisdom. James is saying you can't come at it with hypocrisy. You can't, you can't aim at it that way. There are certain things that you need to get aligned in your own mind and thinking when you come to God. You know, Lord, I want your wisdom. And God says, okay, I'll give you some wisdom. This particular relationship that you are in right now, you need to sever it. And you say, well, thanks for your thoughts on that, but no, I'm going to keep this one. I'm just going just gonna to tie on this one. You know, I want it my way. And so what God says to you in response is, no can do. You're on your own with this one, you know. Up until you begin to pray Solomon's prayer. Lord, I, I, want to, I want to know right and wrong. I want to be able to discern them so I can do what, what is right. See, that's the only way forward is to follow that path, to try to do it any other way. It's a fiasco. And that's, you know, why James said about that individual, they're going to become like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. In verse 8, he's double-minded man and unstable in all of his ways. I, I want to speak to, to my little sisters in Christ for a moment. If you... Are, and I could say this to the guys as well, but I'm just going to, I'm not picking on you. I'm, I want you to hear my heart in this. Um, if you one day are dating or currently dating, this description that James gives of a guy who is tossed about and is double-minded and unstable, you dump that sucker. In fact, if you're in a relationship with one right now, I give you permission to take out your phone and text them and said, we're done, Leon. 
Charlie, we're out of here. Adios, amigos. You text them that right now, you know? Here's the reason why. Here's what wisdom will tell you. You're going to cry tears. You can do it now or you can do it later. But you're going to cry tears over a relationship like that. So why don't you do this? Why don't you throw yourself a party and invite all your friends over and call it an adios amigos party? (laughs) Just write that sucker off. You know, if, if, if the Holy Spirit ever leads you to do that down the road, brothers, sisters, you, you do that. You, you just, you, you send them packing. Now, if they repent, bring them to church. We'll talk about it. You know, because God can change your heart. He, he can do that. But wisdom, walk. Walk in wisdom. God has a plan to love you because God, he gives generously. Now, if you blow it, the Bible tells us God gives it generously and he's not going to find fault. You can come back earnestly one day and say, God, I blew it. I didn't seek your wisdom back here, but I know better now. I want it today. And the Bible says he won't find fault with you because of who he is, not because of who we are but because he is so generous so we can come back to them. He doesn't, he's not going to make you feel guilty or foolish when you do that. He's not like a really bad parent or a really bad teacher who gets annoyed with your questions over and over and over again. See, God, our Father, is waiting. He's waiting for the chance, you know, to bless you. He's not waiting on a chance to go, oh, no, it's you again. That, that's, that's not who our Father is. He gives generously to all without finding fault. Why does he do that? Because he walked among us. And he knows that our trials are real. He knows that our disappointments are deep. He knows that the hills we walk are steep. And he knows that I need wisdom. And that you do too. And he gives it. That's who he is. He gives it. For God so loved the world. That he gave. His one and only begotten son. That whosoever would believe in him, would trust him, would believe he's the wisest person who ever walked and spoke among people, could have eternal life, wise living life now. Eternal kind of living with God in the here and now. That kind of person would ask for forgiveness, for sin, that we would, we would turn to Jesus. So the question is, do we really want God's wisdom, do we really want all of God's wisdom? Are you really intending to devote yourself to follow Jesus and all his ways and the wisdom of God? And I find it very interesting, the verses that come next, verses 9 through 11. Because some people think that, you know, when you read it, that it's a whole different thought. I don't think it's a different thought. I think it's a continuation of the same thought because of where he goes back to in verse 12. I think what he's doing here is using an illustration, and he's using an illustration that's from the whole teaching of God's Word and counsel on something that we struggle with, and that is our resources. What do we do with our stuff? And so James finishes off this teaching about pursuing wisdom and not being double-minded, and he goes like this. He says uh, in verse 9 of James chapter 1, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. Some translations say the poor. And maybe when James wrote that, he was thinking about what his brother Jesus said in Luke chapter 6, verse 20. Blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
And, and then in verse 10, he, he goes on and says, And the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. It, its flowers fall and its it, it beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuit. He's pursuing wealth and riches instead of the things of God. And Jesus, in Matthew chapter 19, asked the question, you know, uh, first he made a statement in Matthew chapter 19. He said, um, it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God than it is for a camel to get through the eye of a needle. And back in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus asked his disciples this question. He said, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul? See, Jesus understood how difficult it is for us to deal well with our, you know, with our wealth, with our resources. And he gives godly wisdom all throughout the scripture. And part of that godly wisdom is that we will entrust our resources to God. And the way God says we will know that if we're doing that is if, that, if we're biblically tithing. If we're giving to God the first of our fruits back to him, the first 10% back to him. Are you doing that or are you double-minded with your resources? Are you unstable with your resources? Because if you are, there's a reason why, why you feel like you're being blown around with things like debt. There's a reason why you will experience the crunch of that or the fear of losing it all constantly. Because you're double-minded in all your ways on this issue. And this is just one example. And I think the reason that James used this example is because he, he knew we struggle with this one a lot. And we need a lot of wisdom here. And so he closes out this area on wisdom, reminding us it impacts every single aspect of our lives. Because God's got a beautiful plan for you that's better than you could even ask or imagine. And God promises that those who get their resources right, that he will throw open the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing in a way that you can't receive it all. That's God's wisdom. Are you devoted to that? Let's pray. Father, we come in the name of of Jesus, giving thanks that you, oh God, want your blessing to fall on your people, that you want joy in our lives, even in our challenges and trials and suffering, that God, you have designed life with you so that in the midst of our greatest fear, what I think about that moment on that night back in July before they were going to crack open my chest a storm came through and you gave a rainbow and I was reminded of your wisdom and your promise that you were with me and that I could I could live with great confidence that I didn't have to figure anything out I could just entrust myself to you and God you've done that throughout my life over and over again and there are others in this room who could stand and give testimony after testimony of how even in the midst of struggle and fear, there was joy in you because of your great wisdom. God, we want your wisdom. We want to want it all 
so we come. We come believing, God, that your wisdom is goodness. And we come believing that the greatest goodness that you ever, ever have given to us is when you gave us wisdom through your son, Jesus. When he came to teach us, God, that we were separated from you by our sin, but that you sent him so that we could have life everlasting. And then he gave his life on that cross so that if anyone would believe and put their trust in him, they could have that eternal kind of life now. And maybe you're here today, and the wisest thing that you could ever do right now is choose the right parachute, and it's Jesus. And you could just pray and say, dear God, I have tried to live in my own wisdom, and I failed, and I need you. I need your wisdom, God. And it was personified in, in, in his son, Jesus. So, God, I need Jesus. And I repent of trying to do it my own way, and I come to Jesus right now. And I see your goodness, Jesus, and I want that. And God, we all, we come again being reminded of your word and your wisdom that it contains for life, abundant life. And we come again this day saying, we see how good it is. We want your goodness, oh God. We want it to flow through us and flow out into a broken world that's desperate, desperate to see how good you are. So fill us, God, with your good wisdom, that perfect wisdom that comes down from above. Fill us with it. Fill us with your goodness. We worship you. We thank you that you are our God and that you love us so. It's in the name of your son, Jesus, we pray and give thanks.